Steve Lerner, welcome to the new school. Thank you. It's good to be here. Steve, you have written uh, about, what, seven or eight books in conjunction with Commonweal. We have uh, your book, Eco Pioneers, which was published by MIT Press, Practical Visionaries Solving Today's Environmental Problems. You wrote Diamond, A Struggle for Environmental Justice in Louisiana's Chemical Corridor. You wrote three books on the California Youth Authority. You wrote a number of pamphlets and essays on juvenile justice in addition to those. Um, you wrote uh, books on the Earth Summit. So what's the total? Do you remember what the total is? Um, I count three major books right. and uh, a couple of books um, that were conversations with um, interesting people in sustainable development, and then a series of smaller monographs. <clears throat> but there are three major works. Mm -hmm. So a lot of your work in different ways has dealt with uh, the <coughs> travails of low-income people in this country, either in the criminal and juvenile justice system or in environmental and social justice issues. That's right. That's my central issue is social justice issues. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> I'm kind of coming back to the mothership here, a uh, place that nurtured me for 30 years in this work uh, and allowed me to explore um, really some of the darker corners in, in our uh, society and to bear witness and to shine a light on some of the areas where we uh, really need to do a lot of work. Um, and uh, I've done that in the prison system, as you mentioned, um, but more recently <coughs> among low-income people who live adjacent to heavy industry and military bases that are hot spots of pollution. Now, before we get to sacrifice zones, your, your work in this area started with Diamond. That's right. Uh, tell us about Diamond. Well. Um, I heard about Diamond first from you, um, and uh, um, when I heard what the situation was uh, in this small um, African-American community on the banks of the Mississippi River, sandwiched between a refinery and a chemical plant, um, I was intrigued to find out what conditions were like on the ground there. And when I went down to visit, um, it was so striking to me that I decided to do kind of a community history, um, which would allow the people to tell their story about <clears throat> what it was like um, living next to these two giant, heavily polluting plants. Um, and in the course of that, I was invited into the homes of... Um, many, many people in the community and really got to spend time with them and to kind of viscerally experience what it is like uh, living in a place where people have to wet towels and put them over their head at night <coughs> because the fumes from the pollution are so bad. Um, and so that, that was kind of the first step in this environmental justice work. Now, you mentioned you heard about it from me, and, and as you know, I learned about Diamond um, from uh, 
traveling through Louisiana with Gary Cohen, uh, uh, one of the great organizers in the environmental health and justice movement. And we were, we were looking, actually, for a place that uh, we could mobilize the forces of environmental health and justice in a winning battle in Louisiana. And we looked at lots and lots of different communities in this extraordinarily toxic uh, state. Uh, but when we came to this town, uh, Norco, divided with the white community, as you describe, on one side uh, of the town and the black community on the other, and the white folks got all the jobs with the chemical plant and the, and the refinery, and the black folks were right next to the refinery uh, and didn't get any jobs and were very poor. Right. And most of the <coughs> white folks felt okay about living in this community, though some of them got sick. But the black people felt extraordinarily aggrieved and were very close to the, the chemical uh, fumes from the chemical plant. So uh, I think that the turning point for me, and, and you describe this in the book, um, was when Margie Richards, who later won the Goldman Environment Award for her leading the, the struggle in Diamond, when Margie Richards took me to a place where a house, Margie's house was right on the fence with the chemical plant. And you could hear the people in the plant barking orders. I mean, it was like five yards away. And she took me to a house, just a, a place a little further down the block, where a house had stood, where a young boy had been mowing the lawn. You, you should tell this part of the story because you researched it. Yeah. <clears throat> well, um, the general hazard there is that everybody is um, breathing in a, a, a lot of toxic chemicals. Right. Uh, but there are also accidents. And they're so close to the plant that um, sometimes things blow up and uh, catapult over the fence into the neighborhood. They've had tanks that took off like a rocket and ended up in a playground. Um, but in this particular case, um, Diamond is a very, very tight-knit community, and people look out for each other, and they take care of each other, and they... they, they um, the families are so intertwined that a lot of this is going on all the time. And a young man was mowing the lawn of his grandmother, who was asleep in her house. And uh, <coughs> he had one of those lawn mowers where you, you pulled a cord, and um, two of his friends came up in, on bicycles and chatted with him for a little while, and then after they left, he started the lawn mower. And the spark from the lawnmower ignited fumes that had accumulated on the ground. And he burst into fire, as did the house behind him. Uh, and the house burned to the ground. Uh, some local neighbor ran in and pulled his grandmother out. And other people tried to smother this, the flames of this young man. And uh, they put them underneath a, a tree there and waited for the ambulance, and both of them ended up dying. The boy died about eight or nine hours later. Uh, his grandmother was dead at the scene. So there are different kinds of, of hazards of um, living immediately adjacent to heavily polluting plants. This is a particularly spectacular uh, version of this that gets a lot of press, and people focus on it. 
But to me, the real story is the quiet poisoning that goes on. And I could have cho chosen a different title for this book. I could have called it Poisoning the Poor. Um, because this is a widespread phenomenon. This is happening all across the country. And um, what I took away from writing the Diamond book um, was they won their environmental justice struggle. They embarrassed Shell into paying to relocate them out of these houses that were right next to the plant. And after a long struggle that really took over 20 years, um, they, Shell finally agreed to relocate them. Now, in the process, they destroyed this community. They didn't move it as an entirety. Um, but those, those, that web of relationships that had helped low-income people get by when someone was sick, other people would go to the grocery store and buy them groceries. Somebody needed to go to work, somebody would take care of their children, so on. All of that was destroyed. So I like to describe it as um, um, the same thing that uh, General Westmoreland said in Vietnam, and that was we had to destroy the village to save it. And really that's what happened here. They, they destroyed this village, but they did take the people to a safer area away from, from the fence line. And what, when, I, when I left that work, um, I thought how extraordinary that these, these grassroots organizers in this small community had been able to rise up and, and fight this incredible power, one of the strongest corporations and multinational corporations in the world. And you know, here's this group of people doing bake sales to raise their money. Uh, what an extraordinary environmental justice victory. But at the same time, it struck me that there were thousands and thousands of these communities across the country in similar situations where Margie Richards had not been able to get the community together, get the media's attention, and so on. And that's what led me to want to write a book that looked at the broader pattern. Now, if we take a look, Sacrifice Zones you talk about 12 different communities. Really, it's almost diamond times 12 yeah. in many ways. Um, and, uh, but one of those communities, uh, just to start with one, is Talavast. That's right. Tell us about Talavast. Well, uh, I think Talavast is a telling story because um, this is a, uh, a small, low-income community in, uh, in Florida. Um, uh, south of uh, Tampa that um, really dates back to <clears throat> the end of the Civil War. Uh, when the slaves were freed, um, uh, a bunch of them who lived in Virginia, uh, including the, the slaves of Thomas Jefferson and the children of Ch Thomas Jefferson as well, um, moved south to Florida to a turpentine camp. And this was a place where they'd slash the pine trees and scrape off the sap and boil it up and make turpentine, which was really one of the early industries. Um, so it was, a, it was a, a cross between agriculture and an industry there where they worked. And over the years, a small machine shop started up 
across the street from this, uh, this small community. Um, and at first it was quite modest, uh, but over the years it grew and uh, did very skilled mechanical work. Um, and uh, eventually it began to be bought out by the aerospace industry. And it ended up in the hands of Lockheed Martin. Um, and they began to build the parts for fighter jets, um, for our uh, president's helicopters, for the space program, and the, <clears throat> the core of nuclear weapons. They did the uh, carving of the beryllium cores of uh, nuclear weapons across the street from this small community. And um, I just want to briefly <coughs> tell the story of, um, of one woman, well, actually two of them, uh, Laura Ward <coughs> and Wanda Washington, who lived literally across the street from Lockheed Martin. And Laura Ward um, was at her breakfast table in the kitchen when she looked out the window in a September morning in 2003 and <clears throat> there was a crew uh, of hard hats had pulled a drilling rig up onto her lawn and they were drilling a well. So she went out to talk with them. She is not a shy woman. She speaks her mind and asked them what the hell they were doing. And they said, well, Lockheed Martin asked us to do a test well to see if some of the chemicals from across the street were uh, getting into the shallow aquifer and getting under some of the houses in town. And as she describes it, Laura Ward suddenly felt the ground shift beneath her. And um, she began to think about where she got her water from, which she knew was a shallow well, and that the water that had been coming into the house that she had been drinking, that she had been making baby formula with, that she had been washing the clothes with and doing all the things that we do when we turn on the tap, um, she thought, well, what if that water was poisoned? What if it were poisoned? And, um, and, and so her whole worldview in just minutes began to shift. And she also began to think about, well, you know, all the people in town who have cancer and all the the genetic, uh, uh, the birth defects and uh, uh, the reproductive disorders and so on. So she joined with her, her neighbor, uh, Wanda Washington, and they became the grassroots organizers. Family-oriented community, united and strong, focus. Focus. This is a very um, uh, hard-working, um, church-going community. There are three churches in town. Just about everybody there belongs to one or the other. The, uh, the organizing happened largely through the churches. Um, and one of the people they went to early on was a woman named uh, Helen Byers Worthington, um, who is a nurse, a retired nurse. And everybody in town knew Helen and occasionally would talk with them about different health problems they had. And when she heard about this, she decided to do her own informal health study. And so with just a yellow legal pad and a pencil, she went door to door and started talking to people about their health issues. 
And when she started out, she said she didn't think she would find anything. Uh, she's very skeptical that there would really be any problem from this. Um, but within several days, she was just amazed to find the number of really serious health problems in the community. And partly as she described it, um, people in this town are very proud and they don't wear their problems on their sleeve. Uh, if they're sick, they tend to be kind of quiet about it. Uh, and as an example of this, she told me the story of a young man who had really quite a, a lethal cancer who had not told his grandfather with whom he lived about being ill because he didn't want to worry him. So a lot of this illness was underground. And a lot of it was just, well, that's what happens. People get sick. But when they began to put it together with the types of cancers and the types of developmental disorders and the types of skin lesions and so on with the kinds of chemicals that were coming across the street, they saw a pattern. Um, and so I wish I could give you good news about how this story is working out. Diamond is at least an environmental justice victory. Uh, although the toll there was very, very high. Um, but in Talavast, this goes on. This has not been resolved. Uh, nobody's really doing anything about this. This is just the way it is in America at this moment in these hot spots of pollution where uh, the people who live next door are poor uh, and in many ways uh, do not have the power uh, to change the situation. Right. Now, coming closer to home, Daly City, California. Yes. Just down 101. That's we often right. all pass it, don't think much about it. But yeah. What's happening in Daly City? Well, in Daly City, um, there was a, a housing complex built on contaminated land next to a PG&E maintenance yard. And it goes back, you know, there, before it was a PG&E facility, it was a power plant back in much earlier days when lamp black was the kind of tarry substance that came out of the power plants and, you know, had just contaminated this whole area. And then during the Second World War, they needed housing for um, soldiers and sailors, and so they quickly bulldozed an area and put up some housing and uh, didn't really pay much attention to what was in the soil. And then at the end of the war, uh, this land that previously had been taken by eminent domain from PG&E was returned to them and part of it was also given to the county. And the part that was given to the county was used for low-income housing. And the low-income housing was built on this contaminated land. Now, um, I think this is instructive because a lot of people, when they look at these kinds of environmental justice issues, they say, well, yes, these people are living in dangerous areas where there are a lot of toxins. It's obvious they're right next to a refinery, they're right next to a chemical plant or a military base. Why don't they move? Um, and the answer is a lot of these people are so poor they can't afford to move. And not only are a lot of them poor, but a lot of public housing is built on the fence line 
with heavy industry. So here you have a, a toxic trap where people finally get into public housing. It's very difficult to get into public housing. Because otherwise you're homeless. Right? You're homeless. Right. There are long lists of people waiting to get into public housing. Finally, you get in with your kids and you've got a place. And uh, if you learn there's a chemical problem, you're reluctant to leave because once you leave, you're out on the street. And you're, you know, it's hard to get another birth. So all across the country, in, in many of the places I visited, there were public housing complexes right on the line with, um, with, with these highly polluting plants. One of the ones that sticks out in my mind is in Port Arthur, Texas, where the Carver Terraces, uh, there are three major uh, public housing facilities that are right on the fence line with Motiva Refinery, soon to be the largest refinery in the United States. It's already among the top two or three. And surrounded by many, many other highly toxic plants. So this is not an accident. I mean, it's just not a coincidence that all of this public housing is built in this highly contaminated area. It's built there because it's cheap to get the land and because the people uh, don't protest it, or they're not organized to protest the placing of low-income people in their community. Most of the people in the community are already low-income, and they don't have the time to go out and say there are too many public housing um, facilities being built here, or there's already too much of a toxic burden in the area. This isn't right. Um, but this is part of the pattern of what we're doing in this country, and that is we aren't protecting the people who live in these hot spots of pollution. Now, the environmental justice movement, um, as you describe it, really didn't become a kind of a national consciousness uh, movement until, say, 1979. Is that about right? In other words, you talk, or maybe you go back further than that, but you talk about a lawsuit uh, in Texas in 1979 that marked a critical turning point um, right. in the history of the consciousness of environmental justice. I think that's accurate, um, but these, these kinds of, of struggles uh, ha go way back mm -hmm. when you really examine it. Uh, and when you look at the history of the progressive movement, mm -hmm. uh, you will see earlier versions of this. That's true. Where, where people were living in a mining district right. and it was just horrendous there right. and they fought for better conditions. When in, was Love Canal? Uh, Love Canal was in the, um, I want to say the seven, 60s or 70s, I think. 70s, 70s. yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, Robert Bullard, who is one of my mentors in this field uh, and a man who runs um, uh, an environmental justice center at Clark Atlanta University, um, uh, was, was the person who, who brought this suit. He and his wife uh, brought this suit. And uh, what they were saying was that um, too many uh, toxic facilities were being built in um, 
low-income communities of color in, uh, in, in Texas. And uh, they, that subsequently led to a series of studies which showed they looked at hazardous waste uh, facilities. Um, but the one that uh, Bullard was initially involved with also in, included waste transfer stations and so on. And they were all being grouped outside the affluent white areas in these lower-income African-American areas. And so there were high concentrations of these facilities, and they proved it. And they went on to do this... Um, this, this broader uh, study of where hazardous waste sites uh, were located and showed definitively that these, uh, these were disproportionately in low-income African-American communities and Latino communities and, uh, and with other facilities, Native American communities. And at some length, you describe how then in 1983, a general accounting office study found a strong relationship between the siting of That's hazardous right. waste landfills and race and socioeconomic status. And then in 1987, the United Church of Christ published Toxic Waste and right. Waste in the United States, a national report. So you see in the 1980s, as you say, something changed. Right. right. And that there was a movement from the prior history of these kinds of struggles to a consciousness at least in some communities, of environmental justice as an organizing issue. Yes, and I, I think it is, it is a, a growing awareness and a growing movement. Um, it's still relatively small um, in terms of when, when you ask Americans about environmental justice, many of them will say, what? You know. uh, but among people who... Uh, uh, follow the civil rights issues. This is a clear continuation of the civil rights um, struggle. And, and it's a zoning issue. It is also a zoning issue. And in fact, there were, we had a conference at Commonwealth that I'm, mm -hmm. you were at with right. Carl Anthony and a, a bunch of other extraordinary people Yes, where the, these leaders of uh, African-American environmental justice uh, right simply said, uh, the new chapter in civil rights is zoning. And right. in fact, you're working on another book on this very issue of yeah. zoning, discriminatory zoning in a, in a much broader context. Right. Well, the, the type of zoning that leads to these kinds of problems is a, a mixed industrial residential zoning. And we don't have that here in Bolinas. <laughs> we don't generally have it in Marin County. And we don't generally have it in Cleveland Park, where I used to live in Washington, D.C., uh, in um, middle-class and affluent uh, communities. You don't see a mixture of heavy industry and residential areas. Uh, whereas in these poor communities, it is very common. And uh, that's why I hesitate to put a number on the thousands of... Um, communities that face this kind of problem. Um, it is predictable that if you mix heavy in industry and residential uses in the same area, that you are going to have environmentally induced disease, elevated levels of environmentally induced disease. This doesn't take uh, um, a study to figure out, really. I mean, there are lots of studies, by the way, 
I'd like to mention just a couple, if I may. Um, African Americans are 79% more likely than whites to live in neighborhoods where industrial air pollution is suspected of causing the greatest health danger, according to an AP report by David Pace, uh, in which he used EPA data. He used data about the, the, the factories that used the largest volumes of toxic chemicals, and then he looked at what the demographics were around those facilities. Hispanics are twice as likely as non-Hispanics to live in neighborhoods with the highest air pollution risk. There is a clear and unequivocal class and racial bias in the distribution of environmental hazards. Two academic researchers uh, conclude after reviewing 16 environmental justice statistical studies between 1971 and 1992. Um, there's a study in Massachusetts of 368 communities that found that low-income communities face cumulative exposures from environmentally hazardous facilities and sites that are three to four times greater than all other co communities. Quote, clearly not all communities in Massachusetts are polluted equally. And it goes on. Fines levied on polluters in white areas are 500% higher than they are in minority areas. So there is, in addition to um, all of these st um, stories that are coming out in the press, one sees them here and there in the newspapers, occasionally on television and so on, there is now a, uh, a statistical basis for proving that this kind of uh, discrimination is going on. And uh, I, it's my feeling that this book documents this in a kind of a human way. But it's also been documented statistically. And we really need to begin to um, move beyond the issue of whether or not this is happening to um, how can we be letting this happen and what do we do about it. Now, in my view, the, these uh, fence-line communities, these sacrifice zones, are the canaries in the mine shaft for what's happening to all of us. That's right. Um, you know, we've been doing the cancer help program here for 26 years, and I cannot tell you how many young people come on the cancer help program mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, uh, advanced cancers uh, who have absolutely no business having cancer whatsoever. Right. You know? yeah. And uh, you also talk about birth defects. And in addition to birth defects, we all know that learning disabilities are a kind of invisible birth defect. And the, you know, the levels of learning disabilities and autism and you know, psychiatric disorders. Right. So uh, part of what Commonweal's been doing for the last 20 years, um, and for the last uh, 10 years through the collaborative, eight years through the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, is tracing out what you're finding so intensively in these hotspots right. to all of us, that, right. uh, that, uh, that this represents in um, intense form right. what we're all exposed to. That's we're, right. we're all on the <clears throat> fence line uh, at just different degrees of... Uh, exposure and different degrees of casualty in that sense. I would agree with that, but I would say that 
the distance from the fence line is, Makes a huge is meaningful. Yes. Believe me. Yeah. You go, you know, f 500 yards further, and it's different. And, um, uh, but I, I agree with your main point, and that is this kind of intoxication uh, of the culture uh, is having a huge and often invisible impact. Yeah, and I agree with you that it's different in the intensity of the impact, but when, as with Commonweal, what you're dealing with is the individuals who show up with cancer, right. it's just as intense for each individual facing the, you know, the reality. The question is, right. what is the, what, how intense is the burden? And there's no question that... Right, uh, but that I, I would also yeah. argue that the, these communities represent a special case. Yes. Uh, and that <clears throat> some of us um, have some choices mm -hmm. about um, our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we have some choices mm -hmm. about what chemicals we're exposed to. Uh, others of us are, are, are not in a position to escape um, elevated and disproportionate uh, exposures. And so I look at this as a particularly egregious case. I look at this n not as a, uh, a pervasive, you know, I mean, it's part of a pervasive uh, problem of exposure to toxic chemicals. But this is, you know, in-your-face environmental injustice that has a race and a class aspect to it. Um, so we, uh, you know, partly I look at this as a, as a civil rights issue, and that is, you know, we're taught in this country that um, uh, we are equal under the law and that um, regardless of your race, creed, or economic status, um, the laws will be equally um, uh, meted out. And the reality is, um, and I'm sure many of us are not surprised, uh, that, that that's not the case. Um, that the... Uh, um, environmental pollution that we receive out here and in many other areas is very attenuated compared with these hotspots of pollution. And so why is the government, why are not the environmental regulators, the public health officials, the media, um, why are they not all over this? Why are they not on the ground in these places putting up monitoring equipment, doing health studies, going to the, the, the factories that over and over again are exceeding their pollution permits and at night are letting out vast volumes of this stuff because they know the environmental regulators go home to bed. I mean, you can, you, you can clock it when the pollution starts. You know, it's not during the day. You know, it's at night. And so it's particularly ugly, and it is an indictment of our um, legal system, uh, not just legal system, but regulatory system, that we are not on top of this, and we are not, you know, fining these com companies to the point where it hurts enough that they'll do something. Um, they are getting light fines, and it's just a slap on the wrist, and they continue. It's a cost of doing business. And uh, so, 
I do feel that this this is a special case. Oh, no question uh, about it. That deserves special measures. So since we're on this subject, you ask the question why, and what's your answer? Why do we let them do it? Uh, we let them do it because, um, first of all, many of these places are not in our face. Uh, we uh, see them as we're driving down the highway at... 65, 70, 75 miles an hour, whatever, with the windows up. And we see over there, you know, it's kind of smelly, so you put the window up. But there are people living over there. And we don't go to those neighborhoods, or mostly I didn't before I did this book. I didn't go to these places. So you don't have it in your face, because I lived in a community where this was not really a problem. So many of us just don't look at it all the time. But I think it's also f convenient for us to ignore it. Um, it's convenient because doing something about it will involve costs. Now, I argue that the costs are not as much as the cost that we're already paying in terms of the health damage to these people, uh, in terms of the learning disabilities, the developmental problems, all the cancer treatments and so on, much of which the taxpayer ends up paying for. Uh, so I think it would be cheaper to be smart about this and, uh, and, and protect these people. But I think um, a lot of people look at this and they say, well, we can't do everything. You know, we can't solve everybody's problem. And uh, if we do something about it, it will become so expensive to produce goods and services in this country that all these jobs are going to go overseas. They're going to go to China, and over there they don't care whether people are hurt by, you know, the occupational problems or the pollution and so on. So if we care too much, if we make it too hard for business, we're going to lose the jobs. Uh, and those are real concerns. I don't uh, dismiss the fact that it is difficult to figure out how to do this, but I have some ideas. Um, I do think that there should be a buffer zone, uh, a breathing space between a highly toxic facility and a residential facility. I mean, it just makes sense. You know, you don't put people, whether they're babies or they're adults, you know, living 24 hours a day right next to a refinery. That's stupid in my mind. And yet we continue to do this. We're digging the hole deeper every day. We put up more of these facilities with more residential neighborhoods next door. So there should be a buffer zone law. That is going to be incredibly hard to make happen, just amazingly, because each jurisdiction has zoning power. And breaking through the, um, the, the, the financial interests of the banks and the realtors and the politicians who get their contributions from the banks and the realtors who get appointed to the zoning boards. I mean, there's a little collusion going here without sounding too radical about this. I mean, it's, it, it, it goes on at the local level and it's allowed to go on. So we need something statewide and na nationally that says we have to be smarter about where we place these facilities and where we place the residential uh, populations. I think we also need to be smarter about the monitoring. And there's some very interesting work that's going on where basically they're beginning to equip 
people who live in these fence-lined communities with monitoring equipment. And it started out with uh, um, two people in the Bay Area here, Denny Larson and Ruth Breach, who run Global Community Monitor. And they started providing um, uh, primitive kinds of air monitoring devices to different communities that had this kind of problem. Uh, and so they, had, they, they could capture the smoking gun. They could, they could prove that they were being poisoned, that they were being exposed to a level of toxins that was illegal. Now, we need to do that on a broader scale. We need to hire people in these communities, train them, give them equipment, because they're there 24 hours a day, whereas the, uh, uh, the regulators are, are, are distant. Um, I also think we need to begin to change the tax system so that it taxes bads and not goods, mm -hmm. so that using toxics becomes expensive. And you can choose what you buy based on the price rather than having to go do a research project about what's in it. You, you know it's got more toxins in it because it's more it expensive. Costs more. It costs more, mm -hmm. right. Uh, I think the uh, public health people should be all over this. I think that there should be health surveys done annually in each of these hotspots of pollution. It's not going on. We would begin to be able to see changes in health. Uh, we'd begin to be able to uh, spot these environmental epidemics before they become full-blown. So there are, a lot of, there are a lot of concrete steps we can take. We can begin to pass legislation which says it's not all right to heap all of the heavy environmental burdens on a small group of poor people. That should be illegal. You know, when I was reading your book, um, it struck me that that one of the um, great things that you have sustained in your life that it's so easy for us to lose is the capacity for moral outrage. Um, you know, it's easier psychologically, given all the burdens of life, you know, to somehow develop a way where you sort of view these things from some distance. Maybe you think you're so spiritual that you don't need to worry about it or mm -hmm. something. Or maybe you are cynical about what can be done. Or right. maybe you have a sort of Ayn Rand philosophy that, you know, it is the strong that survive right. and the weak that perish. Um, you know, that there's a great biblical Old Testament tradition about our capacity uh, to sustain uh, uh, outrage. And, um, and many of the people we admire most in the world, some of us admire most, are the people who have nourished that indignation their whole lives. So I guess I want to ask you a personal question, which is, um, do you have to... Uh, nourish that sense of uh, indignation or outrage in yourself? I mean, does it ever threaten to go away, or do you ever think, maybe I've done enough of this, or is it something that's just kind of built into you? Well, I joke that my next book is going to be about luxury resorts and <laughs> <laughs> tropical countries. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. 
But um, uh, I find uh, a lot of nourishment for, um, for this outrage. Uh, um, and mostly it comes from um, the people who are struggling uh, with these everyday um, life and death issues. And uh, whether it's the, you know, 13-year-old bicycle thief who was thrown in with a bunch of psychotic older boys and raped for three months before anybody figured out what was going on in the prison, or if it is um, a bunch of people who know they're being poisoned but can't really do anything about it, uh, who begin to rise up and to organize and to um, make a fuss. Um, I take my inspiration from those people. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, those, to me, are the real heroes in, in these stories. They're the ones who say, uh, enough is enough and uh, we're not going to take it anymore. And, um, and this book is uh, replete with those stories of ordinary people who just uh, say, this, this doesn't work. We, we're not going to go along with this. One of the stories I did was about a community, uh, an Eskimo community, in, in uh, St. Lawrence Island in the middle of the Bering Sea, 60 miles from Siberia. And you would think, I mean, this is a place where there are no stores, uh, there are no motels, there, there is no place where you can go spend money, uh, and where everybody lives a sub subsistence existence mm -hmm. on seals and walrus and whales and birds and fish and, and uh, reindeer. They're, they're reindeer herders. And so you wouldn't think this is a, a place where there'd be this kind of problem, but the U.S. military was there during the Second World War and set up these uh, uh, huge um, uh, bases to, uh, at first, keep an eye out for the Japanese invasion, which was headed that way, and subsequently uh, uh, keep track of the Russian MiGs mm -hmm. that were flying over. And when they left, they just dumped everything into the ground. Literally, they, uh, they dumped all of the oil, all of the kerosene, all of the PCBs, everything. They destroyed the equipment, and they buried it in the ground. And this is a place where you, know, you have a huge amount of uh, ice buildup and snow every year. And so it just flushes through the environment into the, into the seals. The seals turned green. I mean, literally. Uh, um, and these people depend on it because they can't get to the store. Uh, they have to eat it. And um, so many of them came down with cancer that this one woman, Annie Aloa was her name, she was uh, a midwife, um, finally said, no, we're not going to put up with this. And she went ashore off this island and started making a fuss. And um, nobody would listen to her. Uh, made all the rounds of all the regulatory people and everybody kept saying, oh, it's your diet or you smoke too much or you drink too much or one thing or another, blame the victim. And um, she was dying of a cancer 
and uh, a activist at the Alaska Community Action on Toxics uh, did a film about her, uh, which she entitled, I Will Fight Until I Melt. And that's what she did. She fought this, and finally, you know, uh, embarrassed the government into doing a huge cleanup there. Um, lives are still being lost because of this. It's not, you know, you don't get back the health that is lost as a result of this, but at least they were getting some action out of it. So I take my uh, cue from those people. We've talked about the extraordinary local organizers who, who show up, but you also talk in the book about uh, the equivalent uh, in the union movement of the union organizers who spread out across the country to help organize in factories and so on. And you mentioned Denny Larson and Ruth Breach, but there are, as you know, many others that you mentioned, Bradley Angel, Lois Gibbs, who's one of the early people, Peggy Shepard, Beverly Wright, Monique Harden, and Rolfus. Uh, say a little bit about <coughs> that extraordinary community and, and scientists like Wilma Subra. Right. Say a little about that extraordinary community of people who are dedicating their lives to helping these local organizers. Well, they're a very important group and not a very large group. Um, and uh, um, without them, uh, a lot of these environmental justice struggles would not get very far. Um, and what they're doing is they're identifying groups that are beginning to get organized and are providing um, resources and information for them, and, and sometimes financial support. And strategic counsel. Oh, very much so. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's apparent as you watch these uh, environmental justice uh, grassroots leaders coming up in these communities is that they have to kind of take a crash course in toxicology, in environmental regulation, in health effects, and in all these different areas and here are people, many of whom are working, they have a full-time job, or they're just trying to get by and, and, and you know, keep food on the table and so on, and the lights on. And uh, suddenly they have to educate themselves about all of these very, very difficult you know, subjects. One woman told me that she schooled herself in parts per million. And that was shorthand for she had to learn all these phrases, you know, this about toxicology and and environmental regulation. And there are some people who will help these folks learn that and do an analysis for them. Often, what the government does with these groups is they just they they drown them in paper. They send them, you know, fifty reports that are like this that you'd have to have a PhD in the subject to be able to, to understand. I mean, I can't understand them. Uh, I get people to help me figure out what they are, and it's, women, it's people like Wilma Subra and Denny and Ruth and, uh, and others who are expert at this, and they know what's going on. And so they can say to them, well, you know, you've got to put in this form. And this, this chemical, one of the things Wilma does, Wilma Subra, who's a chemist who lives in... Louisiana and helps out these grassroots groups. Uh, 
One of the things she does is she goes into these communities and gets them to start a log, uh, a, a smell log. And that is, when you smell something, you write it down. What's the time? What's the date? And you write down, you know, what's happening. Are your eyes watering? Is it getting to the back of your throat? Are you feeling dizzy? Uh, and so you have your log, and you have hundreds of people in the neighborhood who are all doing this independently. And then periodically they get together with Wilma and they read the logs. It's all done anonymously so that nobody gets busted on this in the community. And they read the logs and then Wilma says, well, on this date, according to uh, um, government data, this plant put out so many tons of this toxic chemical. And here are the symptoms that you are likely to experience from exposure to this. Now let's look at what the symptoms are and what the people say they experienced. And suddenly there's a match. And people say, aha, you know, actually this makes sense. I was feeling nauseous because, you know, that was acrylonitrile or that was, you know, one thing or another. I almost fell over because it was a, 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 a neurotoxic agent or whatever. So. These people are incredibly important. There aren't enough of them. They need to be supported. Wilma Subra is called Saint Wilma in yes. large parts of Louisiana and the South and, yeah. and does this with hundreds of communities yes, uh, at no charge for the most part. She yeah. uh, really is a kind of modern day saint uh, in the environmental health and justice movement. Um, we're getting toward the end of the hour here, and before I open it for other questions, I guess I just want to ask you, um, what, what have you learned from this in your bones that you, that you, uh, you've said it in many different ways, but what is the kind of heart of what you've learned that you carry with you as you do this work? What, where does it sort of reside in you? Well, um, when I was doing this work in Bolinas, um, I would be invited to people's houses and they would hear me carry on about the formaldehyde outgassing from their plywood and the poisons in the coffee that they were having for dinner and so on. And I, I got a reputation for being the Grim Reaper. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was a moniker that followed me for a number of years because I was always talking about these grim subjects. Um, but, and, and, and I'm still interested in them. But uh, what I really take away from this is the extraordinary resilience and courage of everyday people um, who are faced with extraordinary circumstances. And uh, that is what gives me heart to continue to do this kind of work. Um, and also, it, it teaches a lesson um, that my troubles and you know, travails are um, relatively minor compared with what a lot of other people are going through. Steve Lerner, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you.
Let's open it up to questions. Carl. I want to go back to something Michael said at the beginning about Morocco, <coughs> mm -hmm. um, which is that this was a Can you speak town up? Yeah. that um, had an African-American community and a white community on the fence line. And the white community was employed mm. right. to a large extent uh, by the refinery, and the black community was excluded right. from employment. <clears throat> to what extent in your experience of surveying these is there a race and class divide here in terms of how people react on the one hand mm -hmm. and uh, also what problems that poses for organizing these communities? Mm. And I ask that because I just read a piece in The New Yorker uh, which is kind of counterintuitive, mm -hmm. was for me. There's a resurgence in uranium mining that's going on in the West mm -hmm. because everybody wants to think nuclear power is going to be our solution. Mm -hmm. No one asks about where we're going to put the waste. Mm -hmm. No one asks about the consequences of the mining. And there, this article described a town that had, that still has a white community that was a big cancer cluster, mm -hmm. a huge cancer cluster. Mm -hmm. And they're proud of having worked Mm -hmm. Minds. They want a resurgence of this, mm -hmm. even though they know that dozens and dozens of people right. and their families and their Right. So, is this a class issue? Is it different? Is it, what are the dynamics here? I mean, there, there's the racial issue in mm -hmm. communities that have no choice about living where they are. Right. And then there's the folks who get the jobs. Right. It's, it's a fascinating and confounding question, and I, I don't pretend to be able to really uh, come up with a, a, a clear answer to it. But what I, what I have um, witnessed is that when there is a clear racial divide, as there was between Norco and Diamond, and Norco was the white community, uh, and then there was a ditch, literally, and then there was the African-American community that was closer to the fence, that uh, in that situation, um, the African-American community was outraged and rose up, uh, not only because they were being made ill, um, but because they were getting no benefit out of, out of being there. Uh, and I wonder what the situation would have been if they had been fully employed uh, or as employed as the... As the uh, uh, white population. Now, I think it would have been a different dynamic, and it would have split the community more. But I think you still would have had the outrage. Um, and there were people, really what it is about is it's about, it's a bread and butter issue. And that is, people are desperate to have a job. And they're terrified of losing a job or not having a job. And so, if a bunch of people in their community are being made ill uh, because of the plant in their community, they're going to tend to downplay it because they don't want to rock the boat and they don't want to lose their job. And people are shunned in these communities for, for complaining. I mean, seriously shunned, as in, you know, cut dead in the street, nobody talks to you when you go get your groceries, nothing. I mean really scary kinds of situations. And that, that when somebody steps out of line and begins to make a fuss, everybody's telling them, for a whole variety of reasons, to shut up. 
and some of them end up with nasty things happening to their cars and their houses and whatnot. So one reason they're told to shut up is because it's going to reduce property values. And we all know how sensitive an issue that is, no matter where you live. Uh, and the second is um, that, you know, maybe the plant will leave. You know, maybe they'll just say enough is enough and they'll just quit and leave and all of the jobs will be gone. Or, you know, if you do speak up, maybe you'll get on a blacklist and you and your family and everything. I mean, there's some very nasty stuff that goes on between industry and residents. Whose house is going to be bought out and whose is not? How much is it going to be bought out for? You know, um, and also, industry showers goods on these communities. So they have the big fair once a year. And when there's an accident, they come around and give people cash to sign on the line that they won't sue them and so on. Uh, they donate to the public school band. They you know, pay more taxes in town than anybody else. If, if the company leaves, who's going to pay the taxes? The taxes are going to go up because the major contributor is, you know, the company. So I would say that um, the real nitty-gritty of this is that people are put in an impossible situation where they need the work, uh, but the work is making them, is, is, is killing them. You know, so my job is killing me. Or not my job, but somebody else's job is killing you. Now, in, in, in Norco Diamond, some of the residents of Diamond got jobs, but they were the menial jobs. They were the janitors. They painted the gas tanks. Uh, they, they cleaned out all of the... I mean, when you look at what the low-income people who live next to these plants, what they're paid for, they're not given a job at the plant, but they're given temporary work. And what temporary work are they given? Oh, clean out the ducts. All right? So in, in Talavast, you know, the, the people across the street crawled through the, dust, the ducts that were filled with beryllium dust. Well, what do you think? You know, they got beryliosis. They're dying of it. They brought it home on their clothes. Their family got it because they brought it home on their clothes. And so... Um, it's an impossible situation, and that's why it takes a larger force to come in and say, this cannot be allowed to, be, to take place. But it's also that it's Carl, can you hold it for a sec, because I'd like to hear some other voices. Ron, brief question. Uh, yeah, uh, I have a statement, too. If you're, I'm called Dr. Doom, so <laughs> I just want you to know you're the only guy. Um, yeah, I've, you know, all of my life has been uh, enragement about the environment and so forth, but one thing has bothered me a lot in a sense that uh, Silicon Valley is producing all of this stuff we know, I mean, at least I hope we know, this is pretty toxic, and it's going under uh, multi-million dollar houses. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they've shipped a lot of the really dirty stuff over to China because, you know, uh, they don't want to get in trouble. But what do you know about that? Nothing. Steve, before you... Huh? Yeah. Oh, okay. I know nothing. Okay. 
about it. Do you think there's stuff going on? I wouldn't be at all surprised. Surely so. Other questions? Yes, right here. Um, in the environmental justice community, I know there's been a lot of organizing what they call toxic tours. A yes. lot of mm -hmm. areas like Cancer mm -hmm. Alley and yeah. places, and it raises awareness and it brings in outsiders to right. these areas. Yeah. And it also occasionally can shield the community, get the community some safety because the outsider's coming in yeah. and also raising publicity. Was that happening with some of the communities you studied here? Was yes. Was that a tool that was used? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is a tool. And it's a very useful tool. It was, it was used extensively in Diamond Norco. Um, but it, it, there was the toxic two-step that they did across Louisiana and into Texas um, where they took busloads of people from Congress, media people, regular folks who were interested and so on, and they took them from one town to another, introducing them to what the reality is like in these places. And I think it's a very useful thing, um, but, uh, but limited, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, it's great if you can get people who have, you know, a megaphone or have political power or financial power or whatever to begin to put the resources into changing this situation. That's, that's an important way to do it. Um, but it, it does have to eventually go beyond that uh, and move into... Uh, a, a much higher profile issue through the media and through Congress uh, to the point where, you know, these are issues that we're talking about during elections and before elections. And these are things that we're talking about at school uh, because, um, you know, the civil rights movement isn't over. It's just changing. And uh, we have to begin to play our part in that. Other questions? Yes, right back there. Hi. Um, thanks so much for this. Keep your answers short. Mm. Um, I used to work with Alaska Community. Um, mm. uh, Alaska's uh, Community Action on Toxics um, mm -hmm. for a long time, so it was great to see that story in here. Um, and one of the things that I want to ask about is related to that. Uh, you talked about the need for some of these laws, like buffer laws and so forth. And I, um, I didn't hear anything mentioned about the right to know law that's mm -hmm. already in place. Yeah. And uh, and a very valuable piece of that, the toxics release inventory, which has right. been attacked for years. Uh, and and I just wonder if you could address that a little bit because the military is not included on in that. I mean, mm -hmm. there's industry and then there's the military, mm -hmm. you know, treated very differently. And then I don't believe oil and gas emissions are part of the toxics release inventory. Is that well, there are all kinds of holes in, in the right to know rules and laws. I mean, one recent one which we're witnessing right now is about fracking, where they, they um, um, pump these chemicals down into the earth and fracture the rocks. The, the companies that are doing that are saying that they will not even tell the government what, what chemicals they're using. And, and so now they're being forced to come up with the list, but their basic position was, no, we're not telling you anything, even the government, much less the public. So there are a lot of holes in that. Yes, here. So um, I'm wondering, how did you choose amongst all the many, many, many communities that are experiencing this all over the U.S.? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. And the, uh, I, I chose, um, 
I used a number of filters to figure out which ones uh, to focus on because I heard about hundreds of these these uh, communities, and so uh, I started uh, by saying that I was going to focus on um, communities where the environmental justice struggle had already reached a certain level of maturity. It wasn't just you know one or two people talking about it that there had been meetings, that people had started going to the press, and that um, they had formed some kind of an organization. Uh, so, And I, I did that because I, I wanted to show um, that there are numerous groups that are, are already fairly advanced doing this work. Uh, another cut was I wanted there to be certain geographic distribution. Um, I wanted to, to show that it was happening all over the country. Um, it turned out that uh, a bunch of the most um, egregious cases uh, were in Florida, Texas, and Ohio. Mm -hmm. So I have more from those states than elsewhere. So the geographic distribution was a little skewed, but I did go to Alaska. I did you also to, did Earth, Air, Water. I did. That's right. I, I, I looked at a number of different media. and. Uh, I looked at a number of different industries. Yes, in the back there. Um, I'm wondering if, if you know of anybody that's done a study that relates, uh, you mentioned autism. Um, is there anybody that's doing any work to correlate these communities with the, the rate of autism versus other places? I will defer to my brother. Yeah, uh, we, we're, we've been very involved in what's called the New Paradigm of Autism Research and Treatment, which links autism to a wide variety of environmental contaminants. And the place to get a steady stream of that information is to join the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which you go to healthandenvironment.org, and then you join the uh, CHE Autism Listserv, which is the listserv which I'm very active on, uh, that uh, talks about autism and the environment. We have two of the most distinguished researchers in the country, Bob Hendron from UCSF and Martha Herbert from Harvard, who are the advisors on it. And there's a very high quality of constant research studies dripping through the CHE Autism Listserv. So I can't speak to these particularly toxed out communities, but they're but the, the history of that is that it started largely with parents outraged about the potential contribution of vaccines and the thimerosal mercury in vaccines contributing, they believed, to some of the kids. And over time, the more sophisticated version of that has become, it's a little like what Steve is talking about, that, that the vaccines for some kids seems to be an initiatory factor and a reversion into an autistic uh, situation but that for many other children, there are many other sources of environmental exposures that are contributing to pervasive developmental disorder and uh, other dimensions of the autism epidemic. So it's a huge field, and the CHE Autism List is an excellent place to track. Uh, Marian. Yeah, um, Steve, is there a website of the Autism Research and so that those of us that would like to help out to have this stepping stone, so to speak, of help uh, can go to. Boy, I wish there were. 
Um, I don't know of such a list. Uh, um, I can look into that for you. Uh, I know a couple of places to go. Um, as I mentioned, mentioned uh, the Center on Environmental Justice in Atlanta, uh, Bob Bullard's uh, group. There, there do are. Do you have a suggestion on that? Yeah, I, I do. There's yeah. a wonderful book called Living Downstream. <coughs> yes. by Sandra, Sandra Steinberg. Steinberg right? Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And so at the very end of that book, there's some, mm -hmm. um, there's some addresses and websites. Mm -hmm. that, oh, good. Some of which are in California. Uh, uh -huh. okay. That's great. The name yeah. of the book Living downstream, yeah. Sandra Steingraber, the the real the Rachel Carson of our time, yeah. Uh, yes, right over here. Oh, oh um, one answer: uh, Silicon Valley Toxic Coalition. Yeah. The gentleman who asked that other question, but my question. Uh, by the way, thank you so much for, for doing this. Uh, my question is: Do you see any uh, analogies with what's happening in China, particularly, in as much as the heavy industry uh, uh, you mm. intimated might be moving there and the location of, uh, of, of uh, the residential uh, portions within factories, our role as Americans wanting cheap Chinese manufactured products. Uh, do you see any analogies or have you considered any internationalization uh, of of this issue? Um, no, I haven't gone into that. Um, you know, I, I, I focused on the United States. Um, I do think that we are exporting a lot of our, our most toxic environmental problems. Um, and, uh, and we're also exporting toxic technologies. Uh, so um, I think you're onto something there, but it's not an area that I've focused on. And just to say that even the Chinese health authorities recognize they're what they call cancer villages and cancer towns where half the population has cancer. So they're very yeah. intensive uh, uh, sacrifice zones in China. Yeah. yeah. Oh, she asked my question. Oh, good. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, please. But did the book Class Action have any impact on, it was so widely read, what was that, 15 years ago? Yeah. 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 Um, I was definitely informed by that book. Yeah, um, uh, you know the Karen Silkwood story, the mm -hmm. class action. The um, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of very sad stories um, where um, people went to a great deal of trouble uh, to try to prove that some subgroup was being poisoned uh, by environmental a, a local environmental hazard. And it didn't work out, uh, and sometimes it does work out. But um, I would say more often than not, it doesn't work out. And the the proving that the release of uh, a toxin in one place caused a death or a disease in another place is legally in court very very difficult to do. And uh, that's another problem that we need to face. In many of these communities I went to the people who were being most affected were not able to get lawyers to represent them because the lawyers couldn't see a way to make a buck off it. And, uh, and that is just uh, not the way it should be, obviously. Um, we need a, a whole cadre 
of, of trained lawyers who know how to make these cases work and are willing to travel into an area and have the resources to do the research, to go to court, and to, to get people compensated and get the situation changed. But right now, the legal avenue is largely not operative. So I know there are more questions, but it's time that people need to be able to move around. So Steve, thank you very much for a wonderful uh, conversation. And uh, while the supply lasts, we are <laughs> going to be selling Steve's book, which is a $29 cover price for $20, and he will sign it for you. Where are you going to sign it? Uh, you're going to sit right where you are, right. and well, uh, Kira is going to take money from people. Well, let's, why don't you come in here and do the money thing here, and we'll bring the books in, and I will uh, move out of my chair. Thank you all for coming. It's just been a, a great event.